conversion that is the work of the Holy Spirit in giving faith and regeneration and life to a people called out of a world of darkness to be gathered together as the fruit of the work of Christ to stand in the testimony of his death and resurrection empowered by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven and longing for that great day when heaven and earth will be united again uh, with you, our great God, in our presence. And we long for that day. And uh, we, as a church, are a reminder that that is uh, an accomplished reality. We're just waiting for its fulfillment. And even as we take the table this morning, uh, we bear testimony to that, that you will return. So as we gather here and we spend these next few minutes under your word and our whole morning together as we uh, gather as your people, would you um, give us its sanctifying power? Would you renew our minds and conform us into the image of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your book, uh, your Bibles, uh, the book, uh, to Ecclesiastes. We return again uh, this morning this, uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This next section is a rather long section. It begins in verse 12 and goes all the way to the end of chapter 2. We won't get through all of that this morning. We'll try to finish it next week. But we will at least introduce this next phase of this book of Ecclesiastes. And to do so, I want to just ask you a question. Do you, do you ever wonder, you might wonder sometimes... Uh, how you can live or do things opposite or so opposite to what you truly believe and what you truly know to be true. How you can know something and yet still seem to miss it. You ever have that thought? You can know it and yet still seem to miss it. I can say that a lot of us, probably I'm going to go on a limb here and say everybody in this room doesn't live up to in your life everything you know from Scripture. That there's a big gap between your knowledge and between your actual life, what you do and what you think and who you are on the inside. And the whole life is trying to match those things together, which is really the struggle and the war that we're in until that final day when we're fully sanctified, fully conformed to the image of the body of his glory and fully knowing the righteousness that is ours in Christ and knowing it in our actual experience. You wonder how a, a faithful church member or a faithful deacon or church leader can, after many years of service and maybe even teaching, fall into a sin that he taught against, he preached against. We see that in just humanity, political leaders who run their whole campaign on fighting crime and corruption and end up falling to the very same thing and ruining their political career and their reputation. And again, we see it even in our own lives. We know what it looks like to be patient and to be holy, and yet how little do we demonstrate that at different times in our own lives? You know, so that question, we all can understand the tension there. That is that we don't often live up to what we know, and sometimes we don't really seem to get the things that we know. We only learn it after a lot of times failure. And that's, that's really the kind of banner, the question that hangs over the life of Solomon. We ask, how could he be so wise and yet be so foolish? Isn't Solomon the, the one who wrote the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom? How could he in his life write such things even under divine inspiration and yet fail to live it out in his life in such a tragic and obvious way? Well, he did. He did write that, and he did write that, understanding it to some level. But as with many of us, his life was susceptible to inconsistencies. And as with many of us, he had to learn the truth uh, through abysmal failure. That, that is essentially the banner that lies over Solomon's life. So we're going to look at that briefly this morning as I introduce this next section. And we're going to look at it, Solomon in, in three uh, for four different uh, headings. And I'll just mention them to you and we'll, we'll go through them. One is Solomon's rise to power, which was an example of God's covenant faithfulness. Solomon's riches, an example of God's covenant graciousness. Solomon's righteousness, that he lived under God's covenant rule. And Solomon's demise where he ultimately rejected God's covenant priority. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that. 
But begin with me uh, in verse 12, and I'm going to read just, as ver- just verses 12 through 18 of Ecclesiastes 1 through 18, and then we'll, and we'll get into this. Verse 12. This, of course, is beginning a speech of Solomon after his opening words in verses 1 through 11 about his conclusion of life under the sun, that it is vanity. He then says this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under the heaven. Under heaven, It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom, and to know madness and folly, and I realized that this also is striving after wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. And that fits with his opening monologue that the end of what he found after searching for wisdom and meaning and purpose in life under the, under the heaven or under the sun, uh, in fact left him not with more answers, but with more questions, not with more meaning, but a sense of the emptiness of it. Now he says here in verse 1, or verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I want to consider that statement, and actually that's going to be most of what we look at this morning. Under the first, firstly, by looking at Solomon's rise. Solomon's life as evidence of God's covenant faithfulness. As noted in the introduction, when these words here, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, is a reference to Solomon's David's son that he had with Bathsheba. This is not a literary device that assumes Solomon's identity for literary purposes, which is how many will take that. It is, in fact, Solomon. It is the words of Solomon. It is the writing of Solomon, king over Israel. And we're many of us familiar with Solomon. He's one of the most well-known kings in the history of Israel and for good sake, which we'll look at. He is, as noted, the son promised to David who would build the temple and who would sit on the throne of his father. And he was, in fact, the last king who was of Israel who was king over a united Israel. At the end of Solomon is when reign is when the Israel broke up in two tribes, the southern tribe that remained in Judah, and then the other ten tribes that went up north. So he's the last one of the united kingdom. There was David, his father, and then there is Solomon. Even Saul uh, struggled a bit uh, there with all of the tribes together. But here is Solomon king over the united kingdom of Israel. And Ecclesiastes is then essentially a spiritual autobiography of this king. It's a summation of the spiritual wisdom that he learned at the end of his life. It's a divinely inspired count of his experience for the search of meaning and purpose in life. And so because it is essentially an autobiography of Solomon's life, and because what he recounts for us is what he learned against the backdrop of that life, we're going to take some time this morning mostly to consider who Solomon is and the record given to us in Scripture of all that he accomplished and what, and what exactly ultimately all that he lost. Now, essentially, Solomon's life, or not essentially, it is recounted for us, actually, <laughs> in two, two places, in 1 Kings chapter 1 through verse 11, and then in 2 Chronicles chapters 1 through 9. We're going to focus primarily on 1 Kings 1 through 11, a little bit more detail there. And so if you want, we're going to fly through certain parts, but you might want to turn to the book of 1 Kings. It's right after Samuel, so we have... First and Second Samuel, and then we come right into the account of First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings. 
And here we'll just take some snapshots and get an overview of the life of this man, this king of Israel named Solomon. And as we come into the first chapter of the book of Kings, who we're introduced to actually is not Solomon, but his father, King David. And here this once mighty and great king, full of strength and spiritual vitality, energy of life, blessing, is introduced to us here at the beginning of 1 Kings as a dying man, weak and weary. Likely, after having read the account of his life in First and Second Samuel, particularly he's weak and weary because the whole last of his own life was marked by unending pain and turmoil and struggle within his kingdom, all as a result of his own sin. And so we come to him in First Kings, David, and he's barely 70 years old, not quite 70 year old, years old, I think. And here he is kind of somewhat confused and weak, a bit of a pathetic figure in many ways. And nearing death, even though David had received the promise about Solomon on the throne and had, and had already made that known, that wasn't a secret, he nearly allowed the throne promised to Solomon to be usurped by one of Solomon's half-brothers, Adoniah. And that's how we're introduced to the rise of Solomon to the throne. Adoniah had gone and taken some of the respected leaders that were a part of David's kingdom, including Joab, the general that we're familiar with, and they had gone to this along with Adoniah, and they were going to participate in recognizing him as king. This was brought to David's attention through the prophet Nathan, who through Bathsheba brought that to David's attention and called him to action, saying, Adoniah has taken the throne. And you need essentially to make sure that Solomon is established as the one whom God promised to take that role in that position. And so David does that after the, the counsel and advice of Nathan and goes and he honors Solomon as king, puts him on his donkey, sits him on his throne, and declares before all of the nation that this is the one who will sit on my throne. So that's how Solomon rises there. And as soon as Solomon is given that affirmation by his father David, Adonai fled to take hold of the horns of the altar, which was a place of safety. Solomon spared his life and let him go. But it wasn't too long after that, the first king's accounts for us, that Adonai made another subtle attempt to usurp the throne, and Solomon had him put to death. This was followed by a series of events that eventually led to the death of Joab, the former general under David, for his murder, for murder they committed under by him. It was followed by the death of Shammai, if you'll remember, who cursed David as he was leaving Jerusalem after Absalom had taken over the, the throne. And essentially, first and second of King, first Kings chapters one through two, they recount for us the political turmoil and and happenings that led to the rise of Solomon and ended with the elimination of all opposition to his rule and a completion of God's divine judgments on the previous sins committed by those during the reign of David, namely Joab and Shammai and Solomon's half-brother Adonai. Adonai. Now after all of this, which obviously the details are beyond our purpose, we come to the end of chapter 2, and the writer makes this editorial note in verse 46 at the end. Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. Established in the hands of Solomon. So Solomon now reigned unchallenged over Israel. As he mentioned in Ecclesiastes 1.12, he was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And so here he sits in that position. Now, if you are looking at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Immediately following that statement, it says in verse 1, that Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, I want to mention that because at first reading, you might think, well, here it is. Solomon is established king over Israel, and the very first thing he does is he sins by marrying a foreign wife. But that would be to misread the statement here. It actually is more of a statement of showing Israel's new prominence on the world stage in the ancient Near East. 
In fact, his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter was not a violation of the law. It's not a violation of the law. One, I think, was summarized well, commented saying this, such a union was not forbidden by the law, which would forbade alliance with the Canaanites, not specifically in this case, mere to the Egyptians. And now was the daughter of Pharaoh, and nor was the daughter of Pharaoh apparently implicated in the later demise of Solomon in marrying foreign wives. As a matter of fact, in chapter 11, the daughter of Pharaoh is distinguished from the foreign wives uh, that he married that led him into idolatry. So this is not an abdication of the law of God in marrying, uh, in marrying a non-Israelite. Whether it was wise or not can be can be judged on other grounds. But here he is, he marries Pharaoh, and it shows essentially the prominence of the nation of Israel, for here this great kingdom, Egypt, is seeing the political advantage of align, align itself with now the ruler of Israel, namely Solomon, through marriage. It may also indicate the weakness of the nation of Egypt uh, at this time. But here he is, the king over Israel, and forming already an alliance with the great nations of the ancient Near East, establishing Israel as a superpower, as it were, in the ancient Near Eastern world. One other part I want to mention here, that could be easily misread, in verse 3. It says this, now the people, beginning in verse 2, the people were still sacrificing on high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Verse 3, now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of his father David, except that he sacrificed and he burned incense on the high places. Now again, just to correct confusion, possibly, the high places, why those were not the sanctioned places of worship by God, were not, in this account, places of idol worship. They were places that people had set up to worship the one true God, not yet having access to uh, Jerusalem and any kind of central worship there for the people. And so even though that was not the ideal, ideal, note that it's introduced by saying that Solomon loved the Lord and walked in his statutes. The fact that he was offering worship here at Gibeon is because that that's where the, after David brought the ark of God into Jerusalem, uh, there were still the bronze altar and other aspects of worship that were set up in Gibeon. And so there were elements of what would later be included in the temple worship there. It was a place that was the most prominent of all of the high places where the worship of God took place. And so he goes there and says that Solomon at the verse uh, 4, that he offered a thousand burned offerings on the altar. So this was not an example of Solomon disobeying the command to not marry foreign women, nor is it an example of him offering worship to idols. But it does show the great need in Solomon's life and the great need in the life of the nation of Israel for him to fulfill all that God promised in relation to his future ministry, namely to build a temple. And it does establish Solomon as the ruler over the United Kingdom, and it does establish Israel as a prominent nation on the world stage, now entrusted to the leadership of David's son, Solomon. And so we see an affirmation of that even in 1 Kings chapter 3. In verse 5, after he uh, offered his sacrifices in Gideon, it says in verse 5 that the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish of me to ask, ask what you wish me to give to you. Ask what you wish me to give to you. Again, this is a divine affirmation at this point of Solomon's heart as being in line with the will of God. It's not in a place of rebellion. Where does Solomon respond to the offer of the Lord? He responds with a humble sense of his place within God's covenant to both his father David and to Israel. Notice what he says, verse 6. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, accordingly as he has walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. 
Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king, place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. To give your servant an understanding heart, to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? This is the beginning. This is, this is Solomon at the beginning of his reign. And I want you to notice just three brief things about Solomon's prayer. He understood, first of all, number six, that his role as king was not by his own doing, but by God's covenant faithfulness. It wasn't there because of anything unique about Solomon, but because God made a promise to his father David in 2 Samuel 7, something we'll look at later. He knew that his role was a fruit of his father's righteousness, not his own. Of his father's love for God, not his own. He's bearing the fruit of those who have gone before him. His role as king was from God's loving kindness. There's a sense of humility there. Note, secondly, in verses 7 through 8, Solomon demonstrated a proper self-doubt, an awareness of his own weakness and inexperience. It produced in him a deep sense of God's enablement. He knew this role that he was coming to was beyond himself, and he would need God's help to fulfill it. So he had uh, a proper self-evaluation grounded in reality that led him to a sense of dependence upon God. Note thirdly in verse 8 verses 8 through 9. Solomon understood that his role as king was about God's covenant love and care for his people. He understood that. His kingship was not from him, it was not through him, and it was not to him, and it was not about him. It was about God showing care for his people. And this is an important point. He understood that. He understood whatever blessing God gave to him, whatever answer God gave to his prayer was not ultimately for Solomon. It was for Israel and for God's glory. And so as a simple summary, his rise to power was marked by the fulfillment of God's promise to David, the covenant faithfulness of God. And it was marked by a divine affirmation of Solomon as the chosen one to complete the task that was in his father's heart, namely to build a temple. Now secondly, this is God's answer. Solomon's riches as an expression of God's covenant graciousness. What was God's response to Solomon's request? Because God's response serves as a testimony to the rightness of what Solomon requested. It also serves as a test to God, to Solomon's faithfulness. So what did God answer? Well, note first that God granted to Solomon an extraordinary measure of the wisdom and discernment that he asked. Verse 10, it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing and you have not asked for yourself. Note that, note that statement. You have not asked for yourself long life, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment and to understand justice. And so behold, I have done according to your words. I have given you a wise and a discerning heart so that you, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall, nor shall one like you arise after you. God granted him an extraordinary measure of what he asked, even beyond what was in the heart of Solomon himself in making the request. And God acknowledged that the ultimate end of Solomon's request and of his answer, and this is the point I want you to hang on to, were meant for the blessing of God's people and the glory of God's name, not for Solomon's own personal indulgence. Note secondly about God's answer in verse 13. God gave him not only more of the thing that he asked for, but more of things that he didn't even ask for. Look at verse 13. I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any like, uh, there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. Solomon, I'm not only going to give you wisdom, 
and discernment, I'm going to give you an abundance of riches and blessing, all of the things that would be the fruit of my covenant graciousness to the, na to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel. You're going to have it such that you will stand out above all of the kings and all of the rulers of the ancient Near East, of the ancient world. And he said, I'm going to give these ultimately he gives these so that he would be a witness among the nations that there is a God who reigns in Israel. Note thirdly in verse 14. He says this, God conditioned, however, the ultimate blessing, the legacy of Solomon, and the full purpose of his achievements on this one reality, which is at the heart of the covenant. Verse 14. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So you're going to have blessing and discernment for my people to rule them well for my glory. You're going to have an abundance of resources to do that, unlike anybody else of your aid. But Solomon, you must remember that the full experience of these blessings is that you remain consistent in the rightness of your request and walk in my ways. So the blessing is attached in its fullest sense to righteousness. And that's how Solomon begins his reign. That's how Solomon attained his riches. And so from there on, really beginning in verse 16, essentially all the way through chapter 10, is a recounting of the demonstration of God's sovereign fulfillment of this promise to, to Solomon. It says in verse, verse 4, or verse 1, of, well, immediately following this, we have an example of his wisdom. You're, we won't go through it for time's sake. In verses 16 through 28, the very uh, famous case right at the beginning of this promise is brought to him, two women, each one claiming they both had a son, one son died, one son was alive. They were both claiming rights to the live son. Solomon says, bring the child to me. You remember this, right? And he says, well, here I've got a solution. We'll just give me a sword and we're going to cut the child to you and each of you can have half. And then everybody goes away happy. Uh, upon hearing this judgment, uh, one of the women cries out and says, no, 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 no. Let's keep the child alive, give the child to the other woman, and one of the women says, hey, that's a good idea, let's kill the child. And Solomon says, well, now we know who the real mother is. It's the one who desired to spare the child's life, and he gave it. And that news went out, and it says in verse 28 of chapter 3, when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So here he was established as the wise king, as God had promised. His wisdom was so great that his fame, which was the purpose, spread throughout all of the world. Verse 29 of chapter 4, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezerite, Heman, uh, Herman, excuse me, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahol. And his fame was known in all of the surrounding nations. Look at verse 34. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And so this promise was granted, and Solomon excelled them all. And the fame of Solomon spread throughout all of the earth. And as the fame of Solomon spread, the fame of the God of Solomon spread throughout all of the earth. And that was the point. But it wasn't merely wisdom. His kingdom was marked by peace. Verse 25 of chapter 4, so Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. It was also a life marked by excess and riches. Verse 26 of chapter 4, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He actually had divided up among 12 leaders in the region of his kingdom, marked out in 12 areas, and the leaders of those to provide for him each month out of the year, which was an excessive requirement because of the size of an extravagance of his court. And so he had unbelievable wealth. 
We won't go through all of it, but chapter 10, let's just get an idea of it. He says in verse 14, Now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talent of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wars, wares of the merchants, all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield, 300 shields of beaten gold, using three minas of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the forest of Lebanon. It says down in verse 26, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, stationed at different places in Jerusalem. Verse 27, the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. He had incredible, incredible abundance and wealth. There was no end to the amount of riches that marked his kingdom. As a matter of fact, just to add to that a bit, he says in 2 Chronicles, as well, towards some of his wealth. And it says this, that Solomon's, that he, not only did he have the, 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 the commonality of silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones, the horses that were imported, the best from all over the world, he also had large amounts of workers working for him to build the temple and to build his own household. And it says in 1 Kings 11 that he also had during this time an accumulation of wives and concubines. So he had everything that an ancient Near Eastern king would be pursuing. He had building projects. He had wealth. He had a continual extravagant display of his glory and all the Lord had blessed him with. And you can imagine the sense of achievement and validation as well as pleasure and satisfaction that his well-prominence, personal ability, and unimpeded indulgence brought to the mind and soul of Solomon. Yet, in the early years, Solomon maintained his covenant faithfulness to God and fulfilled his primary responsibility to build the temple of God. And let's note just briefly then Solomon's righteousness, that he revered God's covenant rule. The single greatest privilege of Solomon's life was this, that he was the first to build a temple for God. He was the first. Remember, up until this point, there was the tabernacle during their wanderings, and then David brought the ark into Jerusalem. There were still, as I mentioned, some uh, places in Gibeah, some elements in Gibeah, but here is they never had a temple. That was what was in David's heart to build the temple of God, and that was the promise that laid that was a banner over Solomon's life above all else. Let me just mention this to you. In chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, if you'll remember, in the first part, David wanted to build. He had been successful. He had nothing but success, 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 success. He had accumulated, and would even later at the end of his life, a great amount of material that was set aside just for the building of the temple of God. And he had said to Nathan the prophet, he said, See now, David said, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And so Nathan said, Go do what's in your heart and within your mind, for the Lord is with you. God later corrected Nathan and said, No, I'm not with you in this thing. I have not commissioned this for David, but for one who has comes after him. And it is in that context that God gives to David this great promise. After acknowledging how he has been with him and blessed him, he said this. He says, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. This is the Davidic promise. 
when your days are complete, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your descendant after you, and he will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He, not you, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed him before you. Your house, verse 16, and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the Davidic promise. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of that would never come through any of the descendants of David before the coming of Christ. Each one of them would be eliminated as the ultimate fulfillment to sit on the throne forever because of their own sin. But the first instance of the fulfillment of this promise was to reside in David's son Solomon. And namely that he would be the one who would build the temple for God. And so Solomon had bearing on his life this great promise. And he fulfilled it. In all of the blessings that God had given to him, he knew his one primary objective was to fulfill this mandate from God to build a temple. To build a temple in Jerusalem. And so that's what he did. And so with great efforts, with great expressions of his own wealth and his own ability to do this accounted for us primarily in chapter 6, he built the temple of God. He built the temple of God. If you look at the end of chapter 6, verse 37, it was in the fourth year the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year, in the month of Buell, which is the eighth month, the house was finished, that is the temple, the house for God was finished through all of its parts and according to all of its plans, so he was seven years in building it, in building the temple. Solomon embarked actually on this project right away and he fulfilled it just as God had commanded. Now what's interesting is notice in verse 7. It says, now Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished all of his house. It's an interesting statement. It's not exactly clear how to take that in relation to what God had just said about the temple. It could be that Solomon's house took nearly twice as long to build because the temple had already had materials amassed by his father David for the construction of it. There were already plans for the temple that were put into place. So basically it's like if you give a child say, here's the building block or Lego set. And they're like, okay, here's all the pieces and here's the plan, now put it together. And that's essentially what the temple was like in large part for Solomon. Whereas with his house, he had to acquire the plans, he had to acquire the materials, and so on and so forth. So it's very possible that that's what he means, is simply to uh, give uh, an account of those kind of details. However, it may be something more intentional than that. It may be an indicator here already that something was questionable in Solomon's heart. Well, just to at least the possibility, one says this, is this project of self-indulgence or another example of God's blessing? The author does not comment. The reader must wonder if this extravagance is, is in keeping with Moses' declaration that kings must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. He did everything imaginable to show that as Yahweh was a great God, he was a great king. What is displayed here is far more than Solomon's riches and honors than his wisdom. Now, maybe there's an indication of that, but in either case, the temple was finished. He did complete the work that God had given him, and God affirmed it. Look over at chapter 8. After they finished the temple, the writer accounts for us that the ark was brought into the Holy of Holies by the priest. All of the elders were there as well. At verse 3, all of the leaders and the, the congregation of Israel was assembled. And then once it's in place, look at verse 10 of chapter 8. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
which is affirming that Solomon's work was a good work, that Solomon's life and his preparations and the use of all of the amassed riches that God had given him was put to the use that God intended, namely to build this temple. And God affirmed that now that it's done, my presence is uniquely manifest among the people. And what was Solomon's response to this? It was a response of worship. Verse 12, Solomon said, The Lord has said that all that he dwell in the thick cloud. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And then the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. This was a high point in the life of the nation of Israel. This was, this was a climactic event following one of the greatest kings that Israel had ever known after being brought into the land from redemption from Egypt, after seeing the fulfillment of the promise to this great king that his son would sit on the throne in the kingdom that was in peace and knew abundance beyond what anybody could imagine, that it would be under the leadership of a king who was granted among all of the kings a height of wisdom and discernment and blessing that had not been known to men. And here with God's affirmation of the house, Solomon is witness to this thing, surely aware of his, as he prayed, small place in the plan of God, that he was merely fulfilling God's covenant promises, that this was not about Solomon, this was about God's glory. And so he offered up a prayer that demonstrated that. Right against the backdrop of this great manifestation of God, it says in verse 22, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in verse 8 in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven, and he said, O Lord, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all of your heart, who have kept your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. And indeed, you have spoken with your mouth, and you have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. In other words, it's all about you, God. It's all about your faithfulness, your covenant faithfulness. Solomon knew that. His prayer reflected that this covenant faithfulness of God also engendered upon the king and upon the nation the need and the responsibility to walk in the righteousness of God. Look at what he says at the end, verse 3 again. To your servants who walk before you with all of their heart. Look at the verse of 25, into verse 25. If only your sons take heed to their way to walk before me as you have walked. They're referencing the life of his father David. In other words, he knew and understood this was about God's glory. It was a fulfillment of God's faithfulness and that it required righteousness and obedience to God's covenant requirements. And he knew this house, as glorious and great as it was, was but a small token of the reality of the God that they served. Look at verse 27. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens can't contain you, cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? I'm not under any delusion, God, that somehow this great and glorious temple is itself the full embodiment of your presence. It is merely an indicator. It is merely a sign of you who created heaven and earth and whom heaven and earth cannot contain. How much less this house? He says in verse 30 at the end of it, all of this prayer then is directed not to the house, but to the God who dwells above the heavens and the earth. He says when we pray here in heaven, your dwelling place here and forgive. That's where his name dwelled. And Solomon also prayed, as he did for the temple, that it would serve continually as a reminder of the covenant and namely God's redeeming purposes for his people. That he had provided atonement for sin. Remember the mark of the establishment of, as with the tabernacle, the temple were the sacrifices of God. 
And here he says repeatedly, we won't go through the whole thing, over and over he says, when you're, uh, verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor, and repeats that, when Israel sins, when your people sin, when your people sin, and experience the consequences of their sin, and they pray to you who have manifested your covenant faithfulness here at this house, he repeatedly says, forgive them of their sin, restore them to their place of blessing within your covenant purposes. Verse 39, here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know for you alone know the hearts of all sons of men. Verse 43, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner even calls on you. This is the aspect of witness to the nations in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. He acknowledged that it was about God's glory, that it was built on righteousness, that it was a place of redemption and forgiveness and God's covenant faithfulness. He understood this. He understood this. And he ended all of this by rising from this place and this posture of worship. Verse 54, when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord and from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven and he stood and he blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice. And he repeats essentially the, the essence of the prayer that he had just prayed. He reiterates the sovereign faithfulness of God, the people's dependence upon him, and the universal domain of God before all of the nations. Verse 60, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Solomon knew his place in all of this. He knew it was about the Lord. He knew that it required righteousness. He knew that his role was merely to facilitate God's blessing to his people. And then he is met by God again in verse 9, or chapter 9. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. Verse 3. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in the integrity of your heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David. We read that earlier. And you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And then following this again, there's two chapters recounting the blessing and the wisdom of Solomon. So this is his life. This is his rise. This is a demonstration of his wealth and riches that God had blessed him with. And that he, in his years of rule, understood the place that he played in God's program, and it was mirrored in his righteous desires and his righteous accomplishments and his righteous testimony to the glory of God. Pretty good, huh? Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nation concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He goes from such greatness to a fall and a ruin of everything that he had accomplished. He had riches, he had righteousness, and yet he ended with an ignoble demise. And that's the last part. Solomon's demise. He rejected, in the midst of all of that, the covenant priority to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. For when Solomon was old, verse 4 of chapter 11, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father has been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, detestable idol of the Ammonites. 
And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable idol of Moab, and the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. We won't go there for time's sake. Deuteronomy 17, 15-20 gave instructions for the king not to amass wealth for himself, rather to have a copy of the law written that he might have it before him at all times and may uh, conform his life to the requirements of God and to be faithful to the covenant. So the question is then, where did Solomon go astray? Where did Solomon go astray? Which is to say then, as he is a center of like nature of us, where do we go astray? In the light of such blessing, in the light of such faithfulness, in the light of such clear understanding, he ends here with such a dismal account of his failure, very much like his father before him. Where did he go wrong? And I think the point could be simply summarized simply as this. Solomon began to view the blessing of God not as gifts from God that are designed to serve him, meaning God's glory and purposes in this world, but rather to serve his own interest. It's, it's that tragic, it's that profound, and it's that simple. It may have been in the acquisition of his great wealth and honor and possessions. We'll get to that next week. It could be that it was that somewhere as he began to experience the fulfillment of God's promise, that he began to see that more about God's blessing on Solomon than God's blessing on Israel, his people. God here specifically locates his ultimate demise in his sexual sin, his sexual appetite, which became a snare to his heart and caused him to stray from the Lord. I mean, it's incredible the amount of concubines and the wives that he had for him, which he'll say later in Ecclesiastes, the pleasures of men. But the evil of desire of his heart did not happen overnight. It took a while to amass such a harem. He didn't go out on Wednesday with nothing and end up with 300 concubines or 300 wives and 700 concubines on the next day. So somewhere along the line, he had already started that slippery slope that would lead to his ultimate and final demise. Somewhere along the line, the inward motivation changed from that glorious prayer, the dedication of the temple, to Solomon's own interest. And he took for granted the blessing of God and his place and his role within God's purposes. Solomon had failed to take his own advice to watch over his heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. And here the account is that his heart had turned away from God. And he fell. And it was great. And so the Lord said to Solomon in verse 11, So because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. I will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. But he'll leave a small part because of his faithfulness to David. And that's the southern tribe of Judah. That's the end of his life. Ten chapters of glory, ten chapters of faithfulness, ten chapters of abundance, and in just these few short verses, it was all gone. And Solomon knew that when he died, everything that he had done, everything that he had massed, everything he accomplished would come to nothing. And it would be one of the greatest tragedies in the history of the nation of Israel. As I noted, Solomon was the last king to rule over a united kingdom. After him, his son Rehoboam would act foolishly. The kingdom would split, and you would have for nearly 350 years the northern kingdom and the southern tribe of Judah. 
and that would be Israel's history all the way up to the captivity of the Assyrians of the northern tribes in the 8th century BC and in the 6th century BC the destruction of Jerusalem and being carried away into captivity by Babylon that's his legacy that's what he left it is for this reason that in the light of such abundance turn back over to Ecclesiastes that Solomon could, as an autobiographical statement, say at the end of his life, in light of such abundance, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is vanity. Everything came to nothing. He says then, the evaluation in verse 18, because in much wisdom there is much grief, increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. And that is where we get confused. As we mentioned at the beginning, how could wisdom, the wisdom that he spent a whole book explaining in the book of Proverbs, end in such pain? The wisdom that he said in Proverbs leads to long life and the satisfaction of the soul. I'm going to read them all. Chapter 10, my son, of, of verse 2. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. How could wisdom be much pain if he says here it will be pleasant to your soul? It will be what's truly satisfying. He says in verse 17 of chapter 3, her ways, the ways of wisdom, are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. Verse 18, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happier all of those who hold her fast. This is the very wisdom by which God founded the earth and created all things. How could he say, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain? He's talking about a different kind of wisdom here. The wisdom that Solomon exercised in the course of his life to amass the riches and to do the building projects and so on and so forth, and the wisdom which he went to sought out meaning wasn't the divine wisdom he spoke of in Proverbs. It wasn't the wisdom that was born out of a fear of God to understand God. It was a wisdom that did not aim higher than this world. It wasn't a wisdom that flowed out of covenant love for God and worship that had God as his end. He was talking about wisdom for wisdom's sake rather than as the gift from God to be used for God's glory. One captured it well this way. Solomon once said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but what role did godly fear play here in Ecclesiastes? The preacher did not pray. He did not consult scripture in his search for meaning. Instead, he was often running on his own quest for knowledge without ever stopping to consider the majesty of God. And that was the issue, and that is where we fail. When life becomes to us a meaningless and empty means of drudgery and monotony and purposelessness, it is seeking to live life apart from God's wisdom who gives us meaning and understanding. And this is what he says here in this section. I'm just going to mention this briefly. He says, I set my mind to seek, verse 13, and explore wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven, not and from the revelation that's given to me from heaven. And he says, therefore, it is a grievous task which has been given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. He says, I observed, in other words, I'm looking for wisdom by what I can see with my own eyes, not what God reveals to me in his word. And it's the wisdom that leaves one with more questions. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The idea is simply this. Life is mysterious and without explanation, and when you look at it apart from revelation, there's no rhyme or reason to it. You can't understand it. What is lacking can't be counted. You can't fill in the things that you don't know and have access to know. What is crooked cannot be straightened. You can't, you can't fix certain unstraightenable and rules and realities of this world is the idea Richard Dawkins said himself human existence reflecting the, the, an example of what he was saying Solomon, human existence is neither good nor evil neither kind nor cruel but simply callous indifferent to all suffering and lacking all purpose and that's the necessary conclusion apart from revelation and apart from God 
He set wisdom by testing what is evil as well as good. He says in verse 17, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realize this too is striving after wind. And in, essence, in essence, what he's saying is wisdom and folly. He's not talking about uh, being wise and stupid, the madness and folly. The language there is of basically of righteousness and of sin. He's going to detail that some later. And he sought wisdom, but not, again, heeding his own counsel and realizing that there is none righteous, not even one, which he himself will say, he said in his prayer, at the dedication of the temple, and will later say, indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. He failed to understand the power of sin within his own heart. It was an exploration of pride that failed to heed God's warnings. And with all of his searching, with all of his wisdom, with all of his advantages, he missed the heart that was reflected by Jeremiah. We're going to go from here. Well, let me read this. In chapter 9, Thus says the Lord, verse 23, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises love and kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That's what God wants. That's what God wants. But guess what? We do the same things as Solomon today. It's not relegated simply to Solomon. What does our world do? In professing to be wise, what does it say in Romans 1? They become fools. Professing to be wise, they become fools. Why? Because it's looking for wisdom apart from revelation. In man's proud quest for wisdom, they only find what is before God foolishness. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, he says this. You're familiar with these. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Are you looking for meaning or wisdom or understanding in something other than the cross of Christ? That's the, the exhortation of his life. Are you looking for meaning and finding joy and contentment in something other than the cross of Christ? Are you ashamed and embarrassed and or despairing over the power of the gospel in our fallen world that in all of its mayhem and chaos and foolishness and insanity? Do we think that wisdom is going to be in a political plan or some kind of social action? Or do we believe that the wisdom of God in the face of such foolishness is the gospel Christ crucified? And that is the power of God unto salvation. Where man is on a quest for wisdom, man thinks that the wise, we sometimes can fool, fall into those dangers ourselves and begin to start to think meaning and happiness and the answer to all of the world's problems is found somewhere other than in the fact that Christ is crucified, is risen, and returning. Simple truth, but it is the foundation of our lives. And so Jesus said that something greater than Solomon has come. He said something greater than the temple has come. And if we want true soul satisfaction, it's going to be found there. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, rather than according to the according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, for in him all fullness of deity dwells. Said later that in him is the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The one that we celebrate in the temple this morning is the only one that can give meaning to all of the chaos that we see. He's the only one that can give meaning and purpose to life in this world that is marked by such meaninglessness, by such emptiness, by such foolishness, and by such sin. He's the only one who will stand and rise above all of darkness that seems to be ascending day after day after day at incredible rates. But he is the true king, and he is our righteousness. And as we come into the table... Let us remember this. Not Solomon, not David, not any other ruler will ever receive praise in the affirmation that belongs to Christ alone. This is the song that will be sung 
at the end of the ages. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. To Christ and to Christ alone, and He is the treasure of our hearts. So as we come to the table, um, well, as we come to our prepackaged elements, but in remembering the table of the Lord that He has called us to, let us remember that Christ is our wisdom, Christ is our righteousness, Christ is our hope. And let us not lose hope again in the midst of all that we see. And let us make sure that we understand that our role as the church in the midst of what's happening in our world is the gospel. As you have opportunities to discuss what's going on, point to Christ. As you have opportunities to talk about the, the things that are being supported and, and encouraged in our society, remind them that Christ is the true king. He's the only one that can set things right. So let's pray, and then we'll take these elements together. Uh, does anybody need these? If you do, just let George know. And he'll let him bring it to you. Anybody else? All right, well, see, hands those out and pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we will attest that with Solomon, all is vanity. He's going to talk about the injustice in the world, and we know that it re it's there. And nothing is ever going to correct it, though we should seek for righteousness and truth in all times and all places. The fact is that wicked people will rise and do wickedness. That the rejection of your gospel will result, as you told the Thessalonian church through Paul, that you will send deluding influence upon man so that they would believe what is false. We are reminded that this world is passing away. But you, Christ, are our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our hope. You are the one message that we proclaim, and you are the only one who will receive riches, honor, and glory forever and ever. And the amazing thing is, is that by your work and your grace, we get to share in your riches. We get to share in your glory. We get to share in your honor by bearing your name and experiencing your blessings that you achieved and accomplished. And as we take this table, use it as a time to strengthen our hearts and to remind us that we are a part of that kingdom that will not fade away. We are a part of that kingdom that is coming. And that kingdom in which we have been brought to it by your own grace, by your own suffering, that kingdom in which we stand because we have received redemption and the forgiveness of sin. And so remind us of this and help us to live confidently in these truths. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Well, as we do take this...